You're listening to Just One of the Guys, the podcast where glam rockers turn criminals are always welcomed. One and two and three and four and 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 <laughs> Episode of Just One of the Guys, a Green Lantern podcast. This is an internet radio show dedicated to bringing coverage of the Green Lantern comics from cover date June 1990 until cover date November 2004, with a special emphasis on the characters of Kyle Rayner and Guy Gardner. This time, two characters that we're actually going to be covering. Like last week, we are covering another annual for Guy Gardner, Warrior. Thankfully, this time, the annual is a heck of a lot better. The artwork is divergent, we've got Mitch Bird back, in fact, he's doing a story. And despite the fact that the annual was part of the Days of, or not the Days of Earth, the Legends of the Dead Earth storyline that ran through the annuals of 1996, it's got some pretty good stories in it, and a heck of a lot better artwork as well. But however, over in Green Lantern, we've got the return of one of my favorite villains in the Green Lantern comics so far, the hair metal hero, well, not the hair metal hero, Chris Tyler, but that would be awesome. No, the hair metal villain, Zonar who's somehow decided to chop his luscious locks off and go for the more old metal look that Metallica was going through in the same era. Plus, he's augmented himself with a bunch of metal stuff in his body. It's... it's weird. It is very 90s, though, and that's what we love about these comics. But before I get into my coverage of the comics, I'm going to go ahead and plug a couple of promos in for some of my favorite podcasts, hopefully podcasts that you should listen to, and probably podcasts that the Demon's Core requires me to play. So after the promos, we'll get back to our coverage of Green Lantern number 79. sense a disturbance in the force. You always sense a disturbance in the force. I don't like this. Really pissed me off. Oh no! It's a trap! Chewie, get us out of here! You can't run.
Star Wars Monthly Mondays, available the first Monday of every month at twotruefreaks.com. This is the Old Father Odin, and you should be listening to Radio Free Asgard. No, no, that's just not going to work. Let's try this again. This is the evil Loki, and if you hate Thor as much as I do, you should be... All right, let's just try one more thing. Jane Foster here, and you should be... Ah, risen. All right, let's just keep this simple. Hello, everybody. My name is Tom Harris, and I do a podcast called Radio Free Asgard, which airs every Thursday over at RadioFreeAsgard.com. We cover the adventures of Thor, Hercules, and more from ancient times all the way up into the present day. We read old comics and make fun of them. I do ridiculous voices and generally make an ass of myself. So if that sounds fun to you, you should come join us, the only Thor podcast hosted by a true descendant of Odin, over at RadioFreeAsgard.com. And we'll see you there. And we are back. And in order for me to try and get through the incredible backlog that I have of email from you wonderful listeners, I'm going to go ahead and shoot right into the email segment of the show. You've got mail. Pattern baldness. <laughs> and to start out with the emails, we've got one from Mr. Scott Davis. This one's entitled The Siege of Sea Charam, and he writes out, he starts out writing, Hi, Sean. Well, I get I went against Thomas DJ's advice and bought all five issues of The Siege of Sea Charam. Don't go against, don't go against Thomas' advice. It, it never helps you. Anyway, he continues, although I wasn't ecstatic with the story, I admit I didn't hate it either. In fact, I kind of enjoyed it in the end. I'll, ju- pa- I'll just pass along some brief notes, if you don't mind. In part one, Supergirl is hitting on Kyle pretty hard right in front of Donna, which is the reason why Donna is so jealous in part two. Part two was a good issue, and you guys reviewed it well. Kyle and Supergirl on top of each other on page ten screams, get a room. Yeah, it... I think it was meant to be a bit awkward and kind of give the idea that the two might be getting a little more than just uh, co-worker friendly, but I still tend to believe that Kyle is a faithful person, and although he may have a wandering eye, he sticks to one woman when he decides to go out with them, but that's just me. Continuing on, he says, on page 19, it looks like there's a mistake in the story when Donna mysteriously shows up on the alien ship from nowhere. Part 3 loses me a bit, and the story turns to her new goal of building a laser. Part 4 was a good issue. Luke was right. Damage isn't allowed in Atlanta. Is that where the information came from? Guess so. This issue had a good cliffhanger ending with potential genocide cut. Part 5 was a good issue too. Cal tells Donna that he and Supergirl are just quote-unquote teammates. Yeah, right, Kyle. Uh, I hate to disagree with you, Scott. I think Kyle and Donna were in a committed relationship at the time, and anything that he would have done with Supergirl, even if it was somewhat sketchy, probably was not meant to be a a romantic interest at all. Kyle had dedicated himself to Donna. Scott Caduceon, the dilemma of sterilizing a whole race to stop them from taking over the world is an interesting one. In the end, there was a nice moral lesson learned, but I won't tell you how they peacefully solved the problem in case you go back to decide in case you decide to go back to read these issues. But I won't hold my breath. Talk to you later, Scott. Yeah, chances are the Sheet Z Charam storyline is probably not gonna be on my short list of things to read. Too bad, I guess. Probably not. Then our next letter again is from Scott Davis. I'm gonna try and get through a couple of his this episode. 
writes again, starting out with, Hi, Sean. Hello again, Scott. I hope my long emails aren't boring your listeners these days. I try and catch up to your current episodes, but I want to give you credit for a great show and your great co-host. I've all been excellent. Oh, thank you. Uh, Luke has been fun to have on. I'm glad I had him on. Thomas is always a blast. And just recently we had Michael Bailey on, the uh, sort of godfather of all podcasting. So that was really awesome to do. And yeah, having guest hosts on is, is really wonderful, but unfortunately it gives me a backlog of emails that I can't get to. So I'm glad I'm able to do these solo shows and get to them. Uh, he continues on, I'm trying not to be the annoying newbie that everyone hates. Uh, not in any way, shape, or form. We love your emails here. Anyway, I got through some more issues that I want to throw your way. Greenlander number 66. This is a good issue with the introduction of Sonar. Well, good timing. We're coming back to Sonar. You and Dave Walker. Ah, uh, I can't believe I forgot Dave Walker this time. It's been so long since I talked to Dave. Well, actually, no, I talked to Dave this weekend. Never mind. Uh, he says, you and Dave Walker were hilarious talking about this issue, especially pointing out that Paul Pelletier was inadvertently drawing a hero's male parts right up in front of your face. Uh, yeah, that was kind of uncomfortable. I didn't really enjoy that. He continues, what is Allison doing, being a hot model living in a dump apartment above Ravens Coffee? Well, it's New York. Maybe she's just... I don't know. Maybe the uh, modeling job really isn't uh, paying all that well. Maybe she's having to do things on the side. I'll leave that for your imagination. Speaking of Redu, it seems like he likes to stir stuff up by introducing Kyle to Allison, even though he knew Kyle just had delivers, had flowers to deliver to him by Donna. Never really thought of that, but yeah, that, that does kind of seem like matchmaking by like Redu. Maybe he knows that Donna isn't the right girl for him. Uh, you guys cracked me up when you said that everyone who was enjoying the sunset in New York City is now dead from the sun. Great stuff. Greenlander number 67, this was a great issue with Kyle and the Flash meeting up for the first time. Again, the crotch picture of Sonar on the cover was hilarious. Uh, it was big and bold, now wasn't it? The art by Paul Pelletier is excellent, and it still is. And they said, uh, the religious dude cutting his hand on the railing is making me cringe. I love his character though, and the evil look he gave readers on page 12 is great. <sighs> Purgatory. Yeah. You'll get to know him in a couple of issues. I didn't say you'll get to like him, you'll get to know him, though. Greenlander number 68, this is my introduction to the Underworld Unleashed crossover, and honestly, I'm not really getting into it. This might be the first time I've mentioned coloring in my emails, and I don't really like it. The shading with the little green dots takes me out of the story because it looks too computer-generated, and I agree with you that religion should stay completely out of comics. It's interesting that Mars made Paul Christian, quote-unquote, and the Jesus-looking character. I'm not sure where he's going with it. Uh, it's nowhere good, trust me. I laughed when Kyle hit Donna with a snowball on page 12, and it reminded me of the same scene in Dumb Dumb. Thankfully, I haven't seen that movie either because of my aversion of Jim Carrey. What a sand ending for Mr. Freeze with a tear in his eye as he lay dying in such a world. Hopefully he wasn't dying. Hopefully they got him to Blackgate or Blackthorn or Put him in a little hole himself where he can get it. That's a Green Lantern number 69, he says, this one is probably one of the worst unrelated covers I've ever seen. Kyle is holding a dying gun in his arms, but in the issue, she doesn't even get touched. In fact, she spends most of the issue only evacuating the apartment. Kyle's ring construct of Allison on page 12 was great. How we got caught staring at her in a towel on page 21 is hilarious. I think it looks like the writing is on the wall for the Kyle Dunn relationship. I don't think that I would have caught on to the lesbian scene 20 years ago either on page 16. Yeah, it was 
subtly done enough that it wasn't really overt, but now that I have a better knowledge of it, I think that it's been pointed out in other mediums, or other mediums, uh, I kind of understand where it was coming from. But yeah, it's it's not overt. They're not like, you know, kissing each other. It's just, it's quaint. I like that. I like the fact that you don't have to be so, so direct in telling things. You don't have to smack people in the face with it, so to speak. Scott continues, the whole story about Neron tempting the heroes to change their past is eerily similar to Jeff John's last story arc with the Wrath of the First Land. I wonder if any of your listeners agree. Uh, we'll put that out to you. I haven't read any of the current Green Lantern stuff. Uh, pretty much after Rebirth, I pretty much dropped, dropped the Green Lantern book. I came back to read Blackest Night and found that interesting. But, yeah, the Jeff John's run just... Hasn't really caught my hasn't really caught Too bad. He finishes up Green Arrow 104. I picked up this issue to help with continuity and was pretty good. I actually liked his meeting with Kyle and Green Arrow better than the meeting with Flash in the previous issues. Now that Green Arrow and Green Banner are friends, it's nice to set up for further adventures. Thanks again, Sean Scott. Well, thank you, Scott, and yes, there will be further adventures if you're listening currently. I just did a couple episodes a while back with Michael Bailey about the crossover event with uh, Green Arrow and Green Lantern, the Hard Traveling Heroes Part 2, or Hard Traveling Heroes the Next Generation. So definitely go check those episodes out. And to finish things off, we've got one more letter from Scott saying, Guy Gardner Warriors, number 35 through 38. Again, he says, hello, Sean. Hello, again, Scott. We've had a long weekend coming up here in the Great White North, so I thought I'd send you a few thoughts on Guy Gardner number 35 to 38 on this lovely Friday morning. We're number 35. Guy Gardner's clone is back. You've got to be kidding me. I wish I was. I wish I was. And what's with Warriors Long Hair? Oh. It was the 90s. There you go. There's the answer. This is getting weird, he says. This looks absolutely ridiculous on the double page splash on pages 2 and 3. The pencils by Joyce Chin are incredibly detailed in this issue. That's another thing that I think was a problem in the 90s, that the pencils were so detailed and the inks were so detailed that the art tended to look really muddy. Uh, I don't know if I got that across in the last episode where I was talking about uh, Flint Henry's Henry's artwork, because all in all it's not bad artwork, but there's just so much line detail in there that it gets difficult to look at. Scott continues, it looks like a Reese is a back too, and she's sluttier ever than her, in her workout. Oh, yes she was. It's nice to see some of those characters back, like Brick, Amanita, and the always lovable Percival, but who are the hot Green Lantern girls with uniforms almost completely ripped off? You and Dave Walker were hilarious reviewing this issue. Yeah, I appreciate Dave being so kind to actually come on for that issue, because that was, that was one comic that I really wasn't too impressed with in the Guy Card run. We're in number 36, he continues. This was a weird issue of the Underworld Unleashed crossover with Guy's clone visiting the Warrior's Bar. I agreed that I'd love to read about Buck Worker's adventures. On the top of page 4, the art is really off with the two bouncers running past Guy's clone, but then saying that they're going to get him. And then what's with the Earthworm character and why are there so many rats in the bar? What the heck did I just read? It was Underworld Unleashed. Again, it was the night. Dark Stars number 37. I don't know if we covered this, but oh, he says, This was another issue I picked up just to try and keep up with the Warriors' continuity, but it was terrible. 
I thought Jon Stewart sucking face with the hot blue alien amongst the ruins of the Sanshi was a bit rude. Ugh. That happened? Wow, John, way to make out on your girlfriend's grave. Okay. Nice. <sighs> Evil Star looks great, and a lot of buffer in this issue. Uh, and a lot buffer in this issue, but Guy looks awful, especially with his long hair. Terrible issue. Uh, that's disappointing to hear about the Dark Stars, but I guess not uncommon. Warrior number 37. This issue was much better than Dark Stars 37. Evil Star is looking huge on page one, and your comment about Guy looking like he was about to pass a bean burrito was hilarious. Yeah, you should never eat those burritos from those space truck stops. They'll mess you up. The death of the Starlings on page four was brutal as well when Warrior smashes them together. The spank ray on page 11 was great. As well as the Rena Bobbit reference on page 19, it made me cringe. Is Neron really threatening to cut off Jon Stewart's penis if Guy doesn't kill him? WTF. Ugh. I don't know if I remember that. Hopefully I blocked that out of my head. Warrior number 38. This was a good issue because it really focuses on Orisi and Veronia kicking ass in skimpy outfits. Uh, that's not a bad thing. Uh, I loved it when Desmond tells Orisi and Verona to clam up back there their ladies on page four. Campo sure knows how to draw the ladies because Martika is looking hot. Yes, yes she was, and I'm sad how underused she was in the series. On page 19, someone should tell Desmond that Arisi is only 13 years old and she's too young to do. Well, we'll give it that she's aged a few years during the time of the Green Lantern issues, but there you go. For my Canadian content, I have to add that your review of the hockey game advertisement, Messier is pronounced Messier, and Nedved was a player that expected to be an instant star along the lines of Wayne Gretzky, Gretzky, but never materialized into a great player like that. Deathstroke 44, well I picked up this issue to find out what happened with the whole whore daughter thing, but at the end of the issue she was killed while still on the run. She does get called a filthy little slut by Rapture, which kind of caught me off guard. Warrior has a nice fight scene with the villains, but overall it was not worth the purchase. Again, why I'm not covering the ancillary books. Uh, the main titles keep you busy. The new podcast by Tom Panarese about the Nom sounds great. I'm going to have to try and pick up the issues, pick up the issues and follow along. Have a great weekend. Yeah, definitely check out Nom. Uh, he's got, I think, at the time, I think four episodes out now, and they've all been really good. He's been putting a lot of uh, time and effort into that show, getting the music right and actually coming up with uh, some of the information of what was going on concurrently as the books, well, not as the books were being published, but at the timeline in the, in the books. So uh, each book was supposed to cover a month and the day of uh, people in Vietnam, and it's been really good so far. Tom's really knocking it out of the park with that show. But Scott, thanks for writing in. I really appreciate it. And we've got a few more letters. Of course, uh, these letters are from another frequent letter writer to the show, a good friend of mine and host of The Vault of Startling Monster Horror Tales of Terror, as well as the Earth Destruction Directive over the Two True Freaks podcast network. Ladies and gentlemen, let's get some letters from Luke Giacondetti. His first letter is entitled, It's a Hormonally Challenged Double Feature here on Just One of the Guys. And this is about the uh, Wonder Woman book and the Gal Gardner book that we covered a few months back, or about a month or so back. Luke writes, Sean, well, this was an estrogen-fueled pair of books, huh? In Green Lantern, a Wonder Woman guest spot is always welcome, especially as Diana has just been reaffirmed as the real Wonder Woman following the whole downtown Julie Brown costume look. Thank 
God, that was gone. Uh, go, go away, downtown Julie Brown, Water Woman. Of course, with all that regal grace and beauty is tossed out the window when she pins him down with her thighs. Uh, not that I'm complaining. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I think every male who reads comic books wouldn't mind being pinned down by Wonder Woman's thighs, if you know what I'm saying. But yes, there we go. Over in Guy or uh, Gal Gardner, I have to assume our heroine's buxom 90s look is in direct relation to Guy's normally overwrought 90s beefcake physique. As someone who also lived through the 90s comic scene, we both know that it wasn't just the ladies who had insane bodies in the era. Remember that was the time when Wizard Magazine did their hunkin' babe month. Oh, yes, I do remember that. Silly fun this time out, Luke continues, and it's sad to see Guy Gardner coming to an end, but it had to have happened eventually. Thanks for the show, Luke. And then he writes, P.S. Airwolf. Yes, Airwolf. Always, always fun to put in the show. Of course, we've got a couple more letters from Luke. Gonna try and get those in. The next one is When the Music's Over, episode number 74. Luke writes, Sean, killing dark stars. And people are upside, upset by this? Huh. Now, I don't think too many people were upset by it, but we'll just believe that they were. But hey, Adam Strange. It's always good to see Strange pop up, especially in this era where DC had essentially forgotten that he existed. I was very happy to see him get some attention in the late 2000s, before the New 52, and hopefully he'll return soon. Yeah, I'm kind of disappointed that they haven't put him into the New 52. I mean, it'd be nice to see him cross over with Green Lantern. I mean, I think Jeff Johns probably could have done something really interesting with him, but, you know, it is what it is, Luke. Unfortunately, there's a lot of people from this era that have been completely forgotten in the New 52 era, so there you go. Luke continues, uh, regarding Graven, one thing about the 90s was that you can introduce a character like him with ties to the larger universe without making a huge world-spanning deal about it. It's just a story in Green Lantern, not a crossover, nor is it a six-issue epic with a prologue and epilogue with promises screaming of how nothing will be the same again. And I think that's kind of what I liked about it, that it wasn't it wasn't overhyped to some level where you felt that this was going to be the new big bad in the DC universe. He was just a one-off character, and for better or worse, I think it worked well in the storyline. Unfortunately, the art did not live up to the story that continues, but that's another sadly common occurrence in this era. I think DC had a better run of art than Marvel, and especially Image, but they were not immune to rush jobs, strange choices, and overall funkiness. Battling a small army of sealess bad guys is one of those great 90s tropes, especially for unlikely solo stars like Guy Gardner. I know I've made the comparison before, but in his solo book around the same time, Wonder Man similarly had a small gallery of sealess rogues which he regularly tangled with, such as Splice and the Recession Raiders. No really, he says. Wow. Same with folks like Fate, Morbius, War Machine, and so forth. Personally, I always liked it when minor solo stars had their own set of baddies to fight. 
One of my first personal favorite rogues gallery is that of this nature is that of Luke Cage. He wrote for hire from the 1970s. In this period, Luke rarely interacted with the larger Marvel universe, so he had a pretty extensive and unusual brand of villains. Mace, Stiletto, Discus, Black Mariah, Chemistro, Big Brother, Spear, Mangler, Shades and Comanche, Cockroach Hamilton, oh wow, Piranha Jones, that is awesome, Cheshire Cat, The Baron, and so forth. They need to get on a, I, I agree wholeheartedly with Andrew Leyland, a Luke Cage hero for hire set in the 1970s and made in that sort of black exploitation theme. I mean, not as over the top as, say, Black Dynamite, but just to have that sort of 1970s shaft type feel would be awesome to watch. Oh, the, the, and ABC could do it up and do it with their Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. thing and do like a, a block of that, you know, like a Friday night block of that, and I think that would sell so perfectly. But what do I know? It's just me. Anyway, Luke continues, Anyway, the death of Aresia by Major Force is a bit of a shocker for me. Force is one bad dude, and every time he shows up, it should be a big deal. Now I have to wonder if Guy will give Force a taste of his own medicine. But I have to ask, what are we going to do without Guy Gardner? I am definitely going to miss his bravado and his attitude. He's so different than Kyle, and the two books being reviewed at the same time sh on, the sh on the same show has always been a treat for me. Well, basically I'm going to start doing... I'm going to be covering some annuals for a while, and then I'm going to go back and cover some of the uh, ancillary books, the uh, Green Lantern quarterly books. But after that, there's the occasional run. I think there's a Green Lantern vs. Aliens run that ran came out around here. There are a few crossover stories. I won't be covering the Howard Shaken uh, collateral damage storyline because that was ass, and I also think that it doesn't fall into the timeline that we were covering, so good on that. But uh, yeah, I'll try to be sneaking in second books for as long as I can. And Luke finishes up saying, I really like the Earthworm Jim cartoon, and yes, it did play in syndication. The one gag I re really remember was Jim getting into a time machine, telling Peter Puppy to watch a penny, then jumping back time to the 19 1860s, cutting off Lincoln's beard, and then jumping back to the present, where the Confederacy had won the Civil War, and Peter Puppy is now a plantation owner. <laughs> I just remember seeing that and being absolutely blindsided by that insane gag. Uh, I never really watched Earthworm Jim. I was big into Animaniacs and Tiny Toon Adventures at the time. Didn't really get into Freakazoid, but I would have—I don't think my local syndicated network played that, so disappointing. Finishing up, Luke says, looking forward to the next one, but at the same time, dreading it. Luke. He writes, P.S. The sad thing, Sean, I actually really like the song Lucky Star, so hooking it up with Evil Star? Aw, yeah. And then P.P.S., of course, Airwolf. Nope, sorry, Luke. This time out, it's Blue Thunder.
Yeah, my inerrant love of Bubba Smith, Dick Butkus, and Dana Carvey shows is showing through here, so gotta play me some Blue Thunder. But thanks, Luke, for writing in. I appreciate you doing that. We've got a few more letters from Luke, but we'll save that for next time. Our next letter comes from Professor Allen. If you haven't listened to Professor Allen's relatively geeky network of podcasts, definitely go check it out. He's got the Quarterbin podcast where he covers essentially comic books that he found in, what else, a Quarterbin box. Comics that he's paid noble for t- no more than 25 cents for, and it's really good stuff. Sometimes they're clunkers, sometimes they're really awesome. So looking forward to that. He's also, with his daughter, he's got Shortbox Showcase, and I think his daughter is doing uh, Uncovering the Bronze Age, I believe that's what it's called. And in, surprisingly enough, that show is about Bronze Age comics. And Professor Allen Halver writes in, Feedback is the title of his letter, and he says, Sean, as much as I enjoyed the co-hosted run of episodes, I was glad to get some solo episodes recently. My knowledge of Green Lantern this era, of this era is not extensive, so I don't have a feel for what comes along after Guy's comic ends its run. I was just wondering if another title gets added to the GL family at some point, any miniseries, or if you'd be doing single-issue episodes for the foreseeable future. Given how important D- GL is in the current DC, it's odd to think that there was a time where there was only one GL title. Enjoy the show, keep up the good work. Professor Allen. Well, thank you for writing in, Professor Allen. I wrote back to him that at the time when Green Lantern started, there were essentially three Green Lantern books, I guess you could say, in the idea of Guy Gardner and then Green Lantern Mosaic, along with the original Green Lantern title, which Gerard Jones was actually writing all those. So there was kind of a parallel between that and what uh, Jeff Johns was doing with the Green Lantern books at the time. But yeah, for most of the 90s and into the beginning of the 2000s, there was only really one Green Lantern title. So, And it wasn't like Green Lantern was an unpopular book. Kyle Rayner was selling actually pretty well, normally clocking in, a, from what I've seen, in the uh, top 30 of the comic book sales. And this was the time where Image and X titles were pretty much uh, the big thing. So the fact that he was at least in the top 30, you know, says a lot about him. I mean, he may not be holding the spot that uh, the Jeff Johns Green Lantern holds now, but he wasn't uh, He wasn't a slacker. Sometimes he would even outsell some of the Superman titles. So there you go. But I've got a few more emails to get to, but right now, since we're hitting the 30-minute mark on the show, I'm going to go ahead and stop right now. Thanks, everyone, for writing in. I'll promise to get to your emails within the next couple episodes. Keep writing in. I always appreciate it. But for right now, I'm going to start in to my coverage of Green Lantern number 79. Green Lantern 79 was cover dated October 1996 with a release date of August 7, 1996, a cover price of $1.75 US and $2.50 Canada, a title of Hard Time. The story was by Ron Mars, pencils were by Daryl Banks, inks Roby Tangal, color this time was by Buds, Buzz Setzer, letters Chris Iliopoulos, Stooley was Eddie Braganza, and Warden Kevin Dooley. Climbing up the stairs to the apartment of Kyle Rayner, landlord and coffee shop owner, Radu Stanchu carries an urgent delivery to the young artist. But upon opening the door, he's surprised to see the barely clothed Donna Troy answering the door instead of Kyle. Donna makes an innuendo that she and Kyle had a quote-unquote late night, and an embarrassed Radu hands off the letter to Donna for her to deliver it to Kyle. Putting the letter on Kyle's artist table, Donna decides that she could use a couple of her extra hours of sleep. And as she heads back to bed, a strange light emanates from Kyle's lantern. 
cut to Kyle as Green Lantern flying to Slapside Island Maximum Security Penitentiary to assist the newly instated Warden Dunahay in containing a prison outbreak that involves Dave Mustaine wannabe Sonar. The Warden relates the tale of Sonar breaking out and releasing a number of other inmates, and Kyle is willing to help put them back into custody. Dunahay is skeptical, but after Kyle makes him an offer that will make him look good whatever the outcome, he relents and lets the Ringslinger in. Kyle heads down to the cell block to find that Ricky Rocket, oh, I'm sorry, I mean Sonar, has released Shrapnel, Helgrimate, Turfish, Killrock, The Altar, Hungen, and Spellbinder to do his bidding as he rules from his throne in the prison. Having done his homework on studying up on the escapees, Kyle prepares to attack when he's pulled aside by the giant fists of Sledge, the hulking guy gardener villain. Kyle preps for a beatdown, but Sledge says he's not looking for a fight with GL. He wants to take down the loudmouthed Lemmy, I'm sorry, I mean Sonar. Leery of Sledge's plan, Kyle relents and leaps into the fray against the criminals with the hopes that Sledge will at least cause a nice distraction. Kyle easily takes out the minions, but the enhanced Eddie Van Halen, I mean Sonar, is another problem as he actually has become more powerful with his cybernetic modifications. James Hetfield, uh, I mean Sonar, encases GL in a sonic bubble or something and begins monologuing about how he's the next step in evolution and how powerful he is and blah 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 blah. It's at this time that Sledge unleashes his well thought out plan and smashes Sammy Hagar, if, I mean Sonar, through the floor of the prison. This might have been a good thing if it weren't for the hole opening up into the nearby ocean, which just so happens to fill the prison with water. With heading after Sledge and Sonar, or rescuing prisoners as option, Kyle chooses the latter and saves the escapees and delivers them to the warden. Dunahay reluctantly thanks Green Lantern, but reminds him that he let two of the villains escape. Kyle tells him not to worry, as Izzy Stratlin, I mean Sonar, was probably pounded to a pulp, and he's pretty sure that Sledge couldn't do the whole Aquaman thing and breathe underwater. And as if on cue, we see a soaked but still alive Sledge crawl from the water onto a nearby pier. Meanwhile, back at Kyle's Greenwich apartment, Donna leaves a note on Kyle's lantern, telling him to contact her later for some more of what they were probably doing last night. But as she leaves the apartment, a beam of yellow energy emanates from the lantern, eventually coalescing into the form of the once-trapped villain, Dr. Light. I really like this issue a lot more than I like the last issue. I mean, last issue was kind of a jumping on point that really didn't have any heroics. Or it was just the second half also had the storyline where it was Kyle and Donna getting back together. That was kind of average. This one is a much better story. It's a full on hero story with Kyle not being naive or dealing with street level problems. Now, again, I'll admit Sonar is still a kind of goofy villain, but... At least he dropped the hair metal hair, so I can't make fun of him for that anymore. It is too bad, however, that he adopted the whole cyborg Superman look. Thankfully, sands the pocket, so that's a good thing, though. But moving on to notes, uh, the cover's nice. It's a decent cover with Kyle's sort of overly muscled construct standing behind Sonar as he uses his magnetic or his sonar powers to blast away at him 
it's a decent enough cover, but the unfortunate thing is it has sonar on it. And despite his upgrades, the new new sonar really is a pretty lame character. Page two, panel one. It just seems to be sort of a trope of the Green Lantern comic that there are always girls in Kyle's apartment who like to dress in Kyle's dress shirts and pretty much nothing else, as we get a really nice image of Donna Troy dressed up in one of, like I said, Kyle Rayner's uh, white dress-up shirts. It's a much nicer image than Banks has been drawing, and she really looks good. In fact, on panel two, Banks is really back to the form that I really grew to love about him, as Donna just looks amazing here. He's got her face down. It doesn't look like that sort of mannequin-type style that I was talking about in prior issues. She really looks good. The smile is very enticing. Beautiful artwork here. And then, of course, uh, panel four on the same page. Uh, he's gotten the emotions on people's characters, on or I'm sorry, on characters' faces really well here. Is when uh, Radu turns away from the door and leaves, and Donna says bye. The look on Radu's face is just this sort of wild old thing. It's like I shouldn't have seen this. I just saw a woman partially naked, and I'm really embarrassed. It's it's a great artwork here by Banks, and I think, I don't know, maybe Pelletier gave him some tips on it. I couldn't see why, because I think Banks probably had more experience drawing, but maybe he gave him some tips on you know how to enhance his uh, facial expressions, because it looks a lot better here. I, I'm liking it. Now on the same level for the like Pelletier's artwork here. Then on page three, panels four through six, we get the weird thing going on with Kyle's lantern. It's like a beam of yellow light sort of emanates out of it, and then the lantern just closes up, and you see smoke rising out of it. So something's going on with the lantern. I don't know what it could be, but yes, we find out by the end of the issue. Page five, the warden looks kind of on model. He looks. He looks like sort of a cross between Michael Ironside and Brian Cranston from Breaking Bad. I also like how he doesn't really know who Kyle is. I mean, Kyle's pretty famous in New York City and in L.A., but around the country he may not be as well known as, say, Superman or even the former Green Lantern Hal Jordan was. So the fact that this warden doesn't exactly know who he is isn't that much of a surprise to me. Then on page 6, we finally get to... The character of Kyle that I know and love. I mean, this is a Kyle with no more self-doubt. He's over the whole thing. Should I be Green Lantern? Am I taking on the responsibility correctly? No, he tells the warden what he's going to do, and the warden can either take credit for it or disavow it. This is perfect. This is the perfect example of the way Kyle Rayner, I remember Kyle Rayner being written, and I really enjoy it, and I'm glad that we finally got into it. We've had almost 25 issues of him being sort of reluctant to do the job and being filled with self-doubt but now he's finally coming in on his own and when people call him on his supposed inability to do things he's able to come back at them and show that he's capable of doing them correctly so I really enjoy it and all the while while Kyle is being an assertive he's not being a jerk about it well He's being kind of that youthful 20-something 90s era guy, but he's not coming across as obnoxious or uncaring. 
it's the character that I think I think Mars has really gotten his head around the character, and I think he's writing it really well here. Page eight, another page where we show that Kyle has really grown into the whole hero identity thing, and that he knows who all of these villains are. First of all, we get Shrapnel, who I guess is a Doom Patrol villain. He's like a metallic robot type person. I don't know. There was Helgramite, which I know Jeffrey and Michael covered over in the From Crisis to Crisis era. He's a Superman villain. We've got Dervish, who I guess is a speedster, and she's she's dressed kind of a, uh, well, kind of a slutty pirate type thing. There was Killrock. I have no idea who he is. The Altar, who I guess is a steel villain. Uh, let's see who else. Hunyan who is a Haitian-born scientist turned voodoo master. And then we have Spellbinder, who's basically a sort of a 90s version of a Frank Frazetta painting. And I guess she's sort of a spellcaster, as her name would designate. Yes, it's a goofy lot of C-list villains, but I'm glad that Kyle at least has taken the time to figure out who they are, and now he'll know how to take them down, which again, shows him growing as a superhero character. Page 9, we find that Sonar has cut his hair and has done a lot of body modification and piercings and stuff, and yeah, it's a lot like a bunch of the hair metal people did, you know, after the whole hair metal craze died down, so not all that unusual for him. Page 10, we've got Sledge, and he's back to his less-than-intelligent persona here, and I don't know, I never took the character that originally came up in the Guide to Gardner issue as being slow. He was a military guy who took on this experiment, but I never really thought of him as a sort of, well, for lack of a better term, Lenny Small type character from Of Mice and Men. But it seems that they want to portray him as that, and I guess they're kind of trying to relate him to the Marvel version of the Hulk simply because of his size and the whole green thing and I guess giving him a sort of underdeveloped intelligence would kind of make him like that but yeah it doesn't work for me page 11 panel 6 I I find it kind of amusing that when Sledge and GL shake on their whole agreement to uh, take down Sonar that Cal has to shake Sledge's hand with a ring construct hand and I I just find that kind of amusing. Page 12, panel 3. People keep asking who Kyle is. I mean, maybe it's because Kyle's uh, modus operandi is so different from Hal or guys that people might not associate a glowy green guy smashing up the baddies with Green Lantern. But yeah, I would think that, you know, green guy with light constructs flying around might figure out that it's Green Lantern. Maybe I was wrong in my assessment of the intelligence of the villains of the DC Universe. Page 13, panel 5. Here's one of these wonky things that the ring does that doesn't really make sense to me. On this panel, we see Kyle, you know, constructing thing from his armor, from his ring, that shoots out cold rays that freezes both sonar and spellbinder. I don't really get it. I... I know, for example, in the Green Lantern movie, if you watch that, there was one scene where Hal ringed up a flamethrower that spewed fire that was actually sort of orange and yellowish colored at, well, whatever villain he was fighting at the time. However, if you actually go and look at it, and I've got the Blu-ray, so I've kind of paused it and looked at it, 
it's not actually fire. It is ring construct plasma, but it just looks like fire. So maybe this is just ring construct cold stuff. I don't know. Page 15, we get a little wonkiness in the artwork here as on the third panel here, we get a sort of side shot of Sonar and he looks like he's got a some enhancements on the side of his head that look very much akin to the sort of Robocop helmet piece in the uh, first Robocop movie. But then if you look at him in the next panel, a lot of those enhancements are different and it all looks weird. So the artwork from page to page doesn't really stay consistent and that's that's kind of troubling. Page 16, we get a decent splash page here of Sledge coming down and basically double fist smashing sonar, which is always nice. But the one thing, it it kind of reminds me of the same sort of splash page that we had in that issue of Guy Gardner during the Capital Punishment storyline where Guy came down, I think it was, or not Guy came down, but Sledge came down on Guy. And it looks kind of the same here simply because sonar has the short sort of reddish hair and is getting smashed by a sledge double fist style. So interesting parallels there. Moving on then to page 19, panel three. Uh, again, Dunhay or Dunahay looks like he's on model again. I guess also you could think Mitch Pelegi, the, uh, the chief inspector or whatever he was from the X-Files, the head of the FBI, whatever you want to call him. Uh, maybe he could. You know, he's got that sort of grizzled, balding chief investigator look. So there you go. But it definitely looks a bit more on model than a lot of the characters in the book. Page 20, panel 3. As we get to the wrap-up of the story, it's nice to see that Donna is still wearing the necklace that Cal gave to her here in the last issue. So we'll, we're still carrying on the story that Donna and Kyle are getting back together. So it's nice to see that here. And then on page 22, we get the reveal of Dr. Light. And Hopefully it's not the rapey Dr. Light, but yeah, I'm glad that they brought this back. I'm glad they tied in to, I think it was issue 35 of, no, it was actually 36 of Green Lantern, where Hal Jordan had the Guardians imprison Dr. Light in the Central Battery, and now that's kind of coming back to haunt them. So maybe it's not a good idea for the Guardians to put dangerous alien villains or even dangerous villains in side the central battery. Maybe that'll backfire on them someday. Who knows? But that does it for my notes for Green Lantern. I'm going to take a break here and plug a few promos for a couple other podcasts that I love to listen to. And as soon as we get back, we'll start in on our coverage of Guy Gardner Warrior Annual Number 2. Fingers crossed it'll be a lot better than the last one. Okay, Bill, are we ready? Sure, Paul. Oh, wait. Be right back. I need my Avengers... Omnibus. Uh, where did I put that thing? While Bill looks for that, let me tell you about our new endeavor. Two True Freaks has grown, and Back to the Bins is growing with it. I, Paul Spataro, along with Bill Robinson and Scott Gardner... Just say his name three times in an email and he'll appear in your show. Hey, how's it going? Ah! Sorry, sorry, I forgot I had a Scott Gardner life model decoy in here. Be right there. Ow! Ow, put Cap's shield there. Anyway, we're looking to showcase various characters, storylines, issues, or whatever strikes our fancy from the world of the Avengers. Hey, Ben, move that funny-looking hammer, would you? It's it's on that book, and I can't move it. Sure thing, Dad. Where do you want it? Uh, 
over there somewhere. No! no! Watch out for the repulsor! Ow! Oh! Ah! Ah! Don't tell your mother. We like to call it Avengers Spotlight. I thought it was going to be called Old Avengers Never Die. They just get reassembled and sent to another Earth. What? Too wordy? Who knows what we'll cover and who might stop by. So join us for the Avengers Spotlight, where we'll look at Earth's greatest heroes and some of comics' greatest stories, such as the Korvac Saga, Acts of Vengeance, the Kree-Skrull War, and, oh, for the love of Christ, who the hell put the Celestial Madonna Saga on this list? Huh. I found a use for that life model decoy after all. Okay, found it. We ready? <sighs> hey, wait a minute. This is the Book of the Vashanti. Forget it. See you soon, everybody. My favorite Avengers are D-Man and Green Lantern. Say goodnight, Scott. Goodnight, Scott. The Vietnam War, a conflict that changed America. Of those who served, many came back irrevocably changed, while many did not come back at all. This is their story. Marvel Comics presents... The Nam. Join me, Tom Panneries, for In Country, a podcast that covers Marvel Comics series The Nam. Each episode, I will recap and review one issue of the series, as well as provide historical context that's important to understanding the events behind the story. Along the way, I will also take a look at the movies, music, and literature surrounding the Vietnam War. New episodes are posted every two weeks at incountry.podomatic.com. You can find show notes and other media at popcultureaffidavit.com. And once again, we are back to take a look at Guy Gardner Warrior Annual Number 2. This annual had a cover date of 1996 and was released on May, May 29, 1996. Again, Mike's Amazing World of DC Comics is where you can go to get that information. The cover price was $2.95 US and $4.25 Canada. The title was Once Upon a Time. The story was by Bo Smith, penciler was Phil Jimenez, anchor John Stokes, colorist Patricia Mulvihill, letterer Kevin Cunningham, and editor Eddie Pacanza. On an asteroid that was once part of the planet Earth stands the most awesome monument to the most awesome being that ever lived, Guy Gardner, Warrior. In fact, the former restaurant slash base of operations of the last Valderian has been turned into a Cybertronic museum where visitors can relive the legends of the Great Warrior. This is what three aliens do, as the female hostess tells them to enjoy these historic moments in the cast of Warriors. Now, this is the first story in the annual, and the annual is broken up into multiple story parts written by multiple authors and with multiple artists on it. So I will basically be covering each one individually, but I just wanted to start out with this one. It's a nice setup to the whole storyline with people from the far distant future coming to space warriors, I guess, to uh, try and 
listen to tales about Guy Gardner's adventures and possibly adventures of Guy Gardner's offspring. So we'll get to that later in the uh, review. But the Jimenez art is always excellent here. It's really good. And the look of the aliens is really original. And for some reason, the hostess, who's still adorned in the typical warrior sort of her outfit has a bit of familiar look to her so maybe she'll play into the story later on but then we uh, later on cut to a synopsis of the legend of Guy Gardner focusing on his birth troubled upbringing and college football and teaching careers his time in the GL Corps and the Justice League and eventually his rise to greatness as a warrior uh, the art on these pages is by Joe Staten and Terry Austin and it's all right the neat thing about it is this might be the very first time that Joe Staten has actually drawn Guy on his full-on warrior mode, so I guess that's kind of a neat thing to point out about this. Uh, the dialogue is by Kevin Dooley, who was the editor of the Guy Gardner books, or at least the Green Lantern books at the time, and it glowingly retells the tale of Guy's life. Uh, if you read it, it's somewhat one-sided. Uh, it's very pro-guy. It doesn't really... It touches on the fact that a lot of people viewed him as kind of a jerk character. But I think since this is supposed to be told in the guise of being something favorable to Guy, uh, it's a bit... Not really twisted, but sort of... It's sort of propagandized. But in essence, it's not really lies about Guy. It's just embellishments. The next part of the book is entitled Hypersensitive. Its story and pencils are by Mitch Bird. The inks are by Wade Von Grodbadger. Letters again, Kevin Cunningham, colors Lee Lowridge, and the editor was Eddie Briganza. On Gardner's Green, postal worker Garland Marshlands and her flying dragon prepare to make a mail delivery. But on this war-torn, ravaged planet, it's more likely that she'll end up picking up packages rather than delivering them. At the same time, a certain red-haired hunter tracks his unseen prey. Cutting back to Garland, we find her encountering a couple of survivors of the onslaught. Garland offers them a ride back to safety, but the trio is soon set upon by a talking dragon who wants to make a quick meal out of them. Garland tries to stop the slithering shapeshifter, but it overpowers her and gulps up the little boy that she was trying to rescue. Luckily, before the kid becomes a midday snack, Stonewall Fencer, another shapeshifter and supposed ancestor of the Great Warrior, blasts the head off the lizard, saving the young boy's life. But the fight isn't over, as the decapitated lizard spouts gooey tendrils and tries to envelop Stonewall. But our hero isn't having it, as he bursts from the belly of the beast in a weird hybrid rhino-tiger-raptor thing. Stonewall slashes the lizard to pieces and steps upon the remaining sentient piece that was trying to run away. Crisis averted, Stonewall and company share a moment of levity as our hero tries to get rid of the giant horn where his nose used to be. Okay, this one was really nice. This is the first time we've actually had Mitch Bird scripting uh, the book. Uh, and of course, him drawing it is really taking me back to that classic Guy Gardner look. Um, even though Guy's not a character in this, you can tell the artwork is very much Mitch Bird's style. In fact, there's one character in here that's a female character, which is the kind of character that I think Mitch Bird really likes to draw. We'll get to that here in a minute. On page six, the first page of the story, 
Mitch Bird has always been wonderful at drawing dinosaurs. And in fact, I think he's been commissioned to do a sort of, um, what is it, a, a book about dinosaurs. I want to say about, you know, their anatomy and all this. And it's really beautiful stuff. The the artwork here is really nice. It's much improved from the early Guy Gardner stuff. And it sort of fits along with, you know, what he did at the finale of uh, Guy Gardner Warrior number 44. The characters and dinosaurs and everything in here just really looks nice. Plus, I also like the references that in the story they're making to cities and planets being named after Guy Gardner and various places. In fact, when people say something like, you know, oh my god, in fact they're uh, saying oh my guy, it might be a bit sacrilegious, but it works for the narrative of the story. Page 7, we get an image of the tracker stone that we learn his name is Stonewall later in the book. I guess he looks close enough to Guy that you could imagine he might be a descendant. But, uh, yeah, he's got the red hair and his facial features are kind of the same. However, that might just be Bird and his... I don't want to say limited, but his desire to draw most men's faces pretty much the same. So that could be just that. Page eight. I commented earlier on in the series or the show that I really liked the way that Bird drew women, that he drew them with a lot of curves and everything. And it wasn't until, what was it, this last free comic book day that I picked up a art or a sketchbook of Mitch Bird and saw some of his just, you know, sketches of stuff. Again, a lot of dinosaur sketches in there, but a lot of sketches of women, and a lot of women that you would call mm, Botticellian. Um, I guess the current term would be BBWs, and uh, one of the women that, uh, or the woman and the boy that uh, Garland is offering to rescue, the woman is very much a BBW. Now, she's not... She's not unattractive, but she is very hippie and very curvy, and I think this may be kind of the woman that Mitch Bird likes, or kind of the uh, figure that Mitch Bird likes, because he tends to draw them quite a bit, and to be to her credit, or to his credit, uh, she's not unattractive. Uh, she looks really nice uh, for a larger woman, so there you go. Gender equality in the book, and size equality as well. Page 11, we get uh, the image of Stonewall sort of morphing, and it's not like Guy's morphing ability. Uh, it rather looks a lot more like like lycanthropy, like he's changing from a human to a sort of animalized hybrid form. And on this uh, fourth panel on page 11, the character that he's transformed into looks a lot like one of the, you know, animal-human hybrids that you saw in that Canadian movie, Rock and Rule. If you haven't seen it, go seek it out. In fact, uh, Thomas DJ and Derek Ferguson talked about it on one of their Obscure Movies episodes a while back, so... Yeah, it was a fun movie. I remember it from... Oh, watching on HBO a long time ago, but there you go. Page 12, panel 3. We get a kind of interesting look for uh, Stonewall. Again, his morphing is more animal forms rather than weaponry. As we see here, as he was trying to track the alligator, dragon, lizard thing that was trying to eat the characters, he's morphed half of his face into sort of a hawk-like look. So he's got a really big eye on one side and sort of a beak on one side. So he was using that to 
focus more on things. So I thought it's an interesting look for him. And like I said, it's not the typical guy morphing power. So it's a nice kind of change up for this story. And then finally on page 14, you've got just kind of an awkward moment. I guess the mail carrier and Garland was wearing just these weird leather pants that were just ripped up the sides. And it was, it was just highly impractical. And somehow during the fight, I guess her pants get ripped and they suddenly fall down. And for no reason whatsoever, other than to have her have to pull up her pants. So I didn't get that, but you know, it's another attractive Mitch Bird piece of artwork. So a woman pantsless, you know, not such a bad thing, I guess. But that finishes up that story. Really fun story with Mitch Bird doing the scripting and the art. I really enjoyed this portion of it. But it even actually gets better with the next one, which is entitled See My Finger, See My Thumb, See My Fist, You Better Run, which is written story by Bo Spanky Smith, pencils by David Alfalfa Brewer, inks by Andrew Buckwheat Peepoy, Colors by Scott P.D. Bowman, letters Kevin Porky Cunningham, and editor Eddie Butch Braganza. In a not-too-successful future, a quartet of juveniles place a little Reese's teddy bear on the supposedly magic totem to try and repair it. In the real world, Guy Gardner unpacks some trophies as he wonders what he's going to do with the whole inducer thing that he got from Cardone and company. Back in the future, we witness some uh, amber androids eyeing the totem, the kids are using, and without warning, they break into the kids' room with plans on stealing the device. But Gunner, the hero of the children, isn't going to let the golden gobots leave with the totem, and as he reaches for it, a sudden energy surge swaps Guy's consciousness with Gunner, and now the warrior is in the body of a ten-year-old boy. But that doesn't mean he's powerless, as Gunner blasts away at the robots, with the other kids lending a hand taking him down. The kids make short work of the automatons, and Gunner places his hands back on the inducer, transferring their consciousness back to their original bodies. But not before Guy learns that Gunner's last name was actually Gardner. Crisis averted, the kids decide to play robots, while Guy has a Wizard of Oz moment with Buck and the crew. Now, this story was kind of fun because it feels like one of those those old X-Men babies issues from the uh, mid-1980s. In fact, the artwork uh, looks a lot like Art Adams style. Uh, Brewer does a good job of aping that and the sort of kitty looks of the faces, and it's kind of fun to imagine that there would be a Guy Gardner kid storyline in the future with Guy and uh, Aresia and Desmond, Tiger Man, and Buck Wargo is all little, you know, 10-year-old ragamuffins. It's it's actually kind of fun. And like I said, on page 16, we get our first introduction to the characters. And yeah, essentially, aside from Gunner having blonde hair, they're all pretty much analogs of the main characters in the story with Buck, Aresia, Tiger Man, and Guy. So it's kind of fun. And the artwork, again, I hearken back to the sort of Art Adams style for that X-Man annual where they were doing, drawing the X-Babies. It's, it's cutesy, but it's not over-the-top cutesy. And it's just an enjoyable, fun little story. On page 17 and 18, we've got a really nice two-page splash with these giant robots, whom I'm wondering if they're supposed to be sort of an amalgam of gold face in some way, because they kind of, you know, have that sort of golden armor, so maybe they're kind of trying to ape that. But 
really nice look here uh, with uh, Aresia grabbing Kai and you know Buck looking all concerned with his shot well with his pistol which uh, fires of course uh, suction cup darts and Tiger Man just looking like a little talky toddy it's it's just adorably cute moving on to page 21 as Guy has finally turned into the uh, mini Guy warrior or Gunner and Guy have swapped places. I like the fact that not only is Guy taking out these robots, but uh, uh, Tiger Man and Buck are also helping out in whatever limited way they can. I mean, yes, they're kids and they've only got like a pop gun and, you know, they're throwing stuff at them, but at least they're helping out. So I thought that was, again, just really cute and fun stuff. Also throughout all of this, Arisi is really fun. She's like the young little tattletale girl especially when guy and gunner's body uh says a bad word and she's all down on guy about it i guess guy says he's going he says but i'll be damned if i'm gonna let you guys steal a kid's teddy bear and then Reese is like oh gunner said a bad word they're getting the voices of the kids down and it's just more wonderful storytelling from bo smith course after the fight is over guy wakes up from his trans-dimensional whatever and he does his best julie garland impersonation by looking at buck and arisi and tiger man who are there and their adult forms and saying and you were there and you were there and i saw you and auntie m and yeah i guess this is also kind of paralleled in uh oh what is it that episode of uh not formerly known as the Justice League, but I can't believe it's not the Justice League, which ends with a guy clicking his heels together and them getting transported back to the uh, Super Buddies side. So, never really thought about tying those together, but yeah, that is kind of a interesting coincidence. Not ironic. Sorry, Steven. It's not ironic. But that leads us to the final story in the book called Gardener Gals in Dateless in a One-Chinder Town, which is story by Bo Smith, art by Rick Mays, colors by Noel Giddings, and letters by Kevin Cunningham. Gotta assume that Eddie Braganza was again the editor on this one. On the planet Prozac, in the female gender-only town of Steinheim, get it, three descendants of the warrior Guy Gardner ride their futuristic motorcycles through the villainous scum that walk the streets. The sisters are Manzo, the brunette, Croker, the blonde, and Buxton, the redhead, and they're all looking for a valuable family heirloom that was stolen from them. The trio comes across a local mechanic whom they ask for information about the whereabouts of one Lizzie Jordan, the person who quote-unquote borrowed the Gardner family heirloom. For a few pieces of unicurrency gold, the mechanic tells the Gardner girls that the female of that description has been seen frequenting a rather unsavory saloon known as the Busted Lantern. Thanking the mechanic for the info, Croker pays the fee, and the trio head off. Cut to said saloon, where Lizzie and her bunch are trying to figure out what the inducer that she took from the Gardner clan is used for. But before she can experiment on it, the Gardner gals bust in to the bar and engage in some Coyote Ugly level Fighty McFightenstein, copyright Andrew Leland 2011, all rights reserved. The sisters make short work out of Jordan's gang, but decide the ultimate fate of the heirloom, Croker challenges Lizzie to a quick draw contest ring against ring to see who's the fastest. Her sisters try and convince her not to, but Croker steps up to the challenge. The two circle the room, eyeing each other up and down, 
until they pull their rings and blast at each other. But in the moment of battle, the spirit of the warrior surrounds Croker and allows her to outdraw Lizzie and take her out. Crisis averted and heirloom back in the right hands, the girls head out to check up on the mechanic who helped them out. It seems with the money the gardeners paid her, she's ditching this two-bit planet and going to, going to give livestock farming a try. As the gals part ways, the mechanic tells the trio that her name is Annie Wargo, and she hopes that they all stay out of trouble. This is another story that probably could have been considered kind of misogynistic during its time. But the way I believe Bo Smith's right stuff is he's not trying to demean ladies, but he's just expressing, you know, what ladies were like and who were empowered in a way that they didn't take their sexuality so seriously. Uh, the artwork here by Rick Mays is really sensual and like i said it's very coyote ugly looking the girls are dressed very skimpily in very risque clothing and it's it is truly a very 90s look here but it's interesting stuff nonetheless uh, but there is a lot of a lot of poking fun at the uh, sort of feminist ideal it's kind of a balance that they have to pull of not offending females, but also kind of poking fun at the idea. So I think it works for the most part. On page 26, we get a uh, little bit of the uh, beginning of that whole idea of uh, poking fun at the feminism. The planet they're living on is Prozac, P-R-O-Z-A-C-K, and the city of Steinheim, like Steinem, like Gloria. Now, I'm thinking obviously Bo is making a few comments about his feelings about the feminist movement, and again, I don't think they should take it too seriously, but I think he's just putting it in there just to let people know how he feels Page 27 and 28, we get a nice two-page splash of the girls riding into town in their various uh, motorcycles, and just to describe the ladies wouldn't really do any good in a audio medium, so I'm going to read the uh, dialogue that they have for the description of the characters. For Manso, she's kind of a red-skinned uh, girl. Uh, she looks, uh, I hate to say it, she looks kind of Indian, but the description of her is the middle one of the half-sisters, ten feet of bulldozing babe, very serious and very intolerant of fools. This ain't no Jan Brady. Then we go to Croker, who's the blonde. She's the oldest of the Gardner gals, smart, tough, with two fistfuls of power rings. Guaranteed to blast the chrome off a Mortarian trailer hitch. Okay. And then finally there's the redhead Buxton, who is described as the smallest, the quickest, and the loudest. Buxton is enamored of the legends of her ancestor, Guy Gardner. Her red hair and red-hot temper are living proof of her legacy. So you've got three sort of divergent offspring of Guy Gardner, which... Uh, 
each kind of characterize a bit of the individual nature of Guy. So it's interesting storytelling in a in a way that's supposed to be both empowering, I think, for females, but yet, you know, enticing for males that they get to look at uh, women in skimpy clothes as well. And speaking of skimpy clothes, uh, the best example of that is Croker, who's, again, the blonde-haired one. She's wearing those uh, low-rider jeans with a bit of thong underwear and a tank top wife beater, I guess you'd want to call it, that's rolled up uh, to uh, show her midriff off. Uh, She's also wearing a bandana and the uh, sort of hip circular sunglasses. So, yeah, it's a kind of tawdry, like I've said, coyote ugly is kind of the look I think they're going for, but... It is what it is. You you take what you want from it, I think, in this book. Page 31, again, we get uh, an analog for Hal Jordan here in Lizzie Jordan, who is obviously pretty much supposed to be an obvious analog of Hal. In fact, she's got the uh, white stripes in her hair, and her outfit is uh, none less revealing than the other women here, as she's got a sort of unitard that's uh, zipped down about to her belly button, showing a lot of cleavage. So, there you go. Uh, Hal's offspring in the future is is also a tawdry slot. Page 32 is the garter gals break into the busted lantern and start shooting up the place with their rings, especially Croker who has the ring. It doesn't seem to be the sort of ring like uh, Hal or Sinestro wore. Uh, Croker obviously has the yellow energy and uh, Lizzie has the green, but it's more beam-based energy because the rings are connected to their hands by a wire that goes to a backpack around their back that connects to sort of batteries. So you've got the kind of idea that they're mimicking the idea of uh, Green Lantern power rings, but they're doing it with more just beam-type weaponry. Pages 35 and 36, the fight is pretty much stereotypical Bo Smith stuff with the gunslingers having it out. We've seen this done on Guy Gardner Warrior number 43, where Guy and Dementor faced each other down, but this time it's... uh, it's a bit different because it's essentially the analogs for Hal and Guy fighting with their respective rings. And this time out, uh, Croker channels the essence of Guy Gardner Warrior and defeats Lizzie Jordan. So there is a plus for me in that book. But then on page 37, I don't think it was a real surprise to pretty much anyone in the book that the uh, female mechanic in the book was actually supposed to be an analog for Buck Wargo. So if you didn't see that coming, I'm surprised, but there it is. Uh, So you get Buck Wargo as a female as well. Luckily, it doesn't have the handlebar mustache, so I guess that's an awesome thing. But we wrap the uh, story up with uh, the finale, where we finally return to the aliens from the beginning of the story who are reveling in the tales that they witnessed of the Great Warrior. The aliens ask if there's a place where they can purchase items to remember this time, and the hostess points them towards the gift shop in the library. With utmost thanks from her customers, the hostess departs and heads up to the main chamber of the building. Entering a darkened room, the hostess, now known as Lumita, tells the man watching old sports vids of the tourist to the warrior's bar. The man asks if they like the stories, and Lumita replies, Yes, they love the stories, Daddy. And in the last panel, we see a smiling Guy Gardner reply, 
That makes me happy, sweetheart. Very happy. This is a great wrap-up. I mean, Jimenez is back to draw the final little bit of the story. He draws a wonderful image of Guy smiling on this last panel. Like Thomas DJ said before, this is how this is a guy who has made peace with himself and his life. And now, even in the far-flung future, with Earth far behind him, he can truly be happy. Like in issue 44. This is an amazing way to take the character out, and both Bo Smith and especially the artwork by Phil Jimenez just nailed it once again. This was a far superior annual to number one, and I'm glad I got a chance to cover this with you. But that does it for the book, and sadly I guess that does it for most of the issues of Guy Gardner and Guy Gardner Warrior. There'll be points in time during the uh, Green Lantern series where Guy will come back, and there are a few little one-shots here and there that I'll try and cover with Guy Gardner, but next time out, we're going to be moving into a story that deals with Hal Jordan again. Well, kind of inconsequentially at first, because basically uh, we're coming into the era of Final Night, where a Sun Eater envelops the sun of the planet Earth, I guess Sol, whatever you want to call it, and, uh, well, threatens to destroy all life on the planet. There is not much that the superheroes can do, and it seems that uh, it's left up to a certain ex-Green Lantern to try and save things. But before that goes on, we've got to get to issue number 80, where Kyle Rayner has to have a little uh, stand down with uh, Dr. Light. So we're going to be covering that and a little bit of Final Light as well, which uh, Green Lantern number 80 is a crossover so next time out, we'll be covering just Green Lantern 80 and maybe a few issues of the Final Night storyline as well. So stay tuned for that next Friday. And until then, I hope you have a great week and we'll catch you next time on another episode of Just One of the Guys, a member of the Two True Freaks family of podcasts. You've been listening to Just One of the Guys, a Green Lantern podcast, hosted by yours truly, Sean Ingram. All images, stories, and music are copyright to prospective copyright holders and no infringement is intended. This podcast is done solely out of my desire to show the tendencies of the internet that comic books can be fun, humorous, compelling, thought-provoking, and exciting, while not having to fall into the weary tropes of the 1990s. I'm not in any way doing this for monetary gain, which irritates my wife to know. All feedback for the show can be sent to the show's Gmail account at justoneoftheguyspodcast at gmail.com. All feedback, positive and negative, is warmly welcomed. All spam bots are warmly welcome too as long as your definition of a warm welcome is for them to die horribly in a fight. The website address for the show can be found at the brand new Two True Freaks website, located at twotruefreaks.com. There you can find the RSS feed, as well as scans of the covers and whatever else I feel like putting up. Look for me on iTunes. Just search for Just One of the Guys podcast, or search for Two True Freaks, the new world too, and you can subscribe to either the show or Two True Freaks there. 
you can also search me on Facebook. And now you can actually find me there, as it was a requirement of my new Demonsicore contract. But it still doesn't mean that I'll be joining your little Mafia Wars group anytime soon. Thanks for downloading and listening, and come back next Friday for another episode of Just One of the Guys, a Greenlander podcast. The opening music for today's show was Walla Walla by The Offspring, off their album Americana. Again, if you'd like to buy the song or buy the album that it's on, you can go to myriad places, but the best place probably that you'd want to go to would be Amazon.com. And the best way to get to Amazon.com is by going through the link at 2TrueFreaks.com. Every time that you go to 2TrueFreaks.com, click on the Amazon link and buy something from Amazon, a small amount of your purchase price goes back to the 2TrueFreaks to help fund the podcast and the shows that are on the network. It doesn't cost you anything extra, you get the goods that you want for the best prices out there, and a little money goes back to help the two true freaks. So anytime you want to do some shopping on the internet, especially shopping in Amazon.com, make sure that you use the link at twotruefreaks.com.